Hebrews chapter 13, 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of God. And we have come after 40 weeks. This is our 41st week to the last portion of the last section of the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. And what we have here in our text this morning from the author is a closing benediction to the congregation he was writing to. Now, what is a benediction? Every worship service we have ends with a benediction. But how many of us know what a benediction actually is. A benediction is a closing prayer and proclamation, really a closing invocation, that is a closing appeal to God for blessing. At the end of our worship service, when I pronounce the benediction upon uh, you all, I am appealing ultimately to God to bless you, his people, as he has promised to do in his holy word. And the author of Hebrews, who clearly was a preacher in our passage this morning, perhaps illustrates this most clearly. You look at verse 22. What does the author call this book of Hebrews? He calls it a word of exhortation, which is usually indicative of sermon language. The same language is used in Acts 13, for example, when Paul preached in the synagogue. The author ends this sermon letter with two things. He ends it with personal greetings, as we see in verses 22 through 25, and he ends it with a benediction, verses 20 and 21. Now this morning, I'm going to focus on verses 20 and 21, on the benediction portion of this passage. And that's not to say that verses 22 through 25 are are throwaway verses, or that we can't learn anything from them. Personal greetings at the end of New Testament books are, are very important. They teach us quite a bit about, especially about the context of each of the letters of the New Testament and things like this. For example, verses 22 through 25, they show us that this sermon letter was, at least in the mind of the author, it was short. Which means he didn't write everything that was on his mind. He, uh, if you read this sermon out loud, actually, this sermon letter, it can be read in about 40 minutes. That's just a little longer than what I usually preach on a Sunday morning, although it's shorter than a lot of other preachers preach on a Sunday morning. Um, but the author covers a huge topic in this sermon. And, and so when he says this is a short, I've written to you briefly, he's telling us, in his closing remarks, that there's more to be said. Preachers often do this. We often have to cut out huge portions of our manuscripts for the sake of time. But it just shows us what an immense subject the author has undertaken in this sermon letter. There's a lot more he could have said 
about the majesty of Jesus Christ. We also see his heart. We see his love for his congregation in these verses. He shares a bit of good news with them about Timothy in hopes of encouraging their souls. He greets their leaders, their pastors and elders, as well as greeting all the saints, meaning all the Christians in that congregation. And he, uh, as we see in verse 25, desires God's grace to be with them all. This is clearly a man who loves his congregation and as we heard last week, desired to be among his people again. So we see, we learn about his pastor's heart in these closing verses. So we can learn a lot from verses 22 through 25, but the central focus of the passage this morning is indeed found in verses 20 and 21, the first two verses which contain the author's closing benediction to the church. And this is an amazing, it's a rich, it's a dense benediction because what we have in this benediction is really a picture of the entire Christian life. In these two verses, in these two verses, the author somehow manages to talk about both our justification, how we are made right before God, and our sanctification, how we live now as God's people as we grow in holiness. And so we have two parts here in the benediction that are worth our consideration. The first part being what we might call the theological foundation for the blessing, which is found in verse 20. And then what we could call the real life expression of the blessing found in verse 21. So what we see in these two verses is the great truth that God does indeed save us. And then God equips us to live out the Christian life. That's what verses 20 and 21 tell us, even in this closing benediction. So let's begin this morning by looking at verse 20, which lays out the theological foundation for the blessing. If you're a note taker, you can take verse 20 and break it into three main points. Three words that begin with the letter P. And my pastor back in... Lancaster loved to do this all the time. He loved alliteration. He would often give sermon points that began with the same letter over and over again. So, uh, and I would often make fun of him for doing it, uh, but he would be proud of me this morning. These three P words that help us understand verse 20 are the words peace, promise, and protection. Peace, promise, protection. First, peace. Verse 20 begins with the phrase, now may the God of peace. Who is blessing us? Who is the author appealing to for this blessing? The God of peace. The phrasing here could actually uh, be translated to say the God who gives peace. That would have been a, an, 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 excuse me, an encouraging reminder to the original audience of the book of Hebrews. The uh, original audience were Christians who were experiencing much turmoil and persecution. And the author is saying to them and to us today, don't forget, though the world around you may be raging, though it may be shaking, you belong to the God of peace, the God who gives true peace. The storms may be raging around you. Are you being tossed and thrown by the blows of life? Do you feel out of control of your circumstances. Maybe you even feel out of control of yourself. Be encouraged. You belong to the God of peace. He is the God who gives peace, true, everlasting peace. And this peace 
is more than just the absence of turmoil. When God gives peace, He isn't just promising to give us peace from conflict. The peace God's, God gives us is, as one commentator notes, it's completeness. It's soundness. It's welfare. It's well-being. It's wholeness. The peace God gives us is a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that is grounded in the idea of shalom, true harmony, peace and harmony with God himself. And it should not be lost on us what a privilege it is that we can call God the God of peace. It should not be lost on us that we have true peace and shalom with God because the reality is we have sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. And Paul says in Romans 5 that we were enemies of God. So how is it that God's peace can come to us? How is it that we can have shalom with the holy God? Well, the next point of the benediction tells us it's because of God's promise. Promise. Another word for promise can be covenant. And here, once again, the author reminds us of the great reality of the new covenant. Yes, it's true. The Apostle Paul says, Romans 5, we were enemies of God in our sin and rebellion. But then he says, for while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The death of Christ. The blood of Christ, which has inaugurated the new eternal covenant, has reconciled us to the holy God. The author of Hebrews writes, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The death and the resurrection of Christ, when we turn to Jesus in faith, it brings us into the new and eternal covenant with God. Christ's death and resurrection has sealed God's promise for all who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This is how we're brought to peace with God. Because the Lamb of God, Jesus, was slain upon the altar of the cross in our place, and through the spilling of His blood, he made satisfaction for all of our sins, gaining us the forgiveness that we need and the righteousness we lack because Christ on the cross shed the blood of the eternal covenant in payment for our sins. We are now brought to peace with God. How do we know? How do we know that the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, of Jesus Christ, was accepted by God the Father? How do we know that God has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. How do we know that we are truly at peace with God? Because God, as our text says, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The resurrection. The resurrection is the vindication of Christ's sacrifice. It shows us that God has approved and has accepted the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And now, all who are trusting in that sacrifice are indeed at peace with God. This is the promise of the new covenant. 
That believers in Jesus Christ are washed clean of their sins forever. That we're made righteous in the sight of God forever. That by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus, we have been made holy and given full access into the presence of God forever. It's the promise that we have peace with God forever. And so we have God's peace because of God's promise. And the third, the final point to this foundation of the blessing is found in the statement, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Here we have our third P word, protection. Those who are at peace with God through the promise of God now have the protection of God. Last week, we talked about church leadership from Hebrews 13 verses 17 through 19. And I spoke how elders and pastors are shepherds of Christ's church here on earth. But if you recall, if you recall, I said that we are ultimately only under shepherds serving under the oversight and accountability of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. This must not be forgotten. Local church leadership has been tasked with protecting the flock so to speak, but you have an even greater shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. I really appreciate how one pastor summarized this point of protection. He said, as the great risen shepherd, Christ's compassion and protection are mediated from a position of an unparalleled display of power. He, our shepherd, is exalted at the right hand of the Father, All other shepherds pale by comparison. There is none like our great shepherd. What security the fact of our risen great shepherd brings our souls. I hope it brings you encouragement. I hope it brings you a sense of security, brothers and sisters. This is who is ultimately watching over you, protecting your soul. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd who gave his life for the sheep who victoriously conquered death and rose again. It is He, it is Jesus, who is tending to our souls from His place at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the one protecting your everlasting soul. So this is the foundation of God's blessing to us. We are His. We are children of the God of peace, being brought to peace with Him through the promise that is the new covenant which is secured in Christ's blood. And now we have the assurance of God's eternal protection because our great shepherd is indeed the risen Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And this brings us then to verse 21. As I said, this benediction really gives us a complete picture of the Christian life. Verse 20, we see the glorious wonder of the gospel of Jesus. That's really what verse 20 is talking about. It's talking about the gospel. It's talking about our justification and the blessings that flow from our justification. Now we have the real life expression of the blessing. This verse, verse 21, deals with living in light of the gospel. We know that God's plan for His people is not just that we shall be saved. It's also that we would live life in His service. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. 
Which means we are called to submit to His Lordship. We're called to submit to Christ. Jesus said, you love me, you will do what I command. We were created for the purpose of glorifying God. We glorify God through faithful living. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's the first verse. Isn't that what we just heard in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 13? Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Then the Apostle Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we shall walk in them. We have been saved by grace, through faith, becoming the workmanship of Christ for good works. Good works, or as our passage this morning says, that you may do His will. But the good news in all of this, these good works, us doing God's will is not left up to our own volition. It's not left up to our own ability. No, Our text says God is the one who has equipped us for these good works. Look at verse 21. I know it begins right in the middle of a sentence, but within the flow of the benediction, this prayer of blessing upon the church, the author is praying that God would equip us with everything good. Here, the author of Hebrews is saying that God has not only saved us, He has given us what we need to do His will. He has given us everything necessary to live to the glory of God. Whatever our calling is in our lives, whether we're called to be pastors, elders, deacons, lawyers, secretaries, mechanics, nurses, doctors, teachers, store clerks, sales associates, fathers, mothers, sons, Daughters, brothers, sisters, grandparents, husbands, wives, widows, widowers, whatever it is that God has called us to be, He will be the one to equip us to fulfill our roles and our duties all to His glory and honor. Now this too is a great encouragement to us. Because while we are indeed new creations in Christ, we all feel the remnants of the old man at work in us. We still have indwelling sin in us that must be rooted out. As long as we draw light, or as long as we draw breath in this life, we will battle against sin. And sometimes we'll give in and we'll cave in that battle. And that sin can wear us down and we may be tempted to think at times in our lives, God can never be glorified through my life. I'm too sinful. God can never use me for His glory. I'm too wicked. But that's not true. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and if you are washed in His blood, you are now equipped to live according to God's will. God will work His will in you so that you can grow in holiness and grow in your Christ-likeness. And you will indeed, not perfectly, your battle against sin is not going to end until you enter into the presence of Christ forever. But you will indeed find yourself 
more and more living for the glory of God. He is the one who is right now, as our text says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. God is equipping us. God is enabling us to live for his glory, brothers and sisters. This truth has been a great hope for God's people throughout the centuries. It's what, it, it's what led St. Augustine in the fourth century to pray, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Augustine knew the sovereign God had the right to command of his creatures whatever he willed. But he also knew that if left up to his own ability, he could never live according to God's will. And so he prayed to God, command what you will, but give what you command. If you don't give it, I can't live it. I'm, I'm too far gone in my sin and rebellion. And that's what God does. He gives what he commands. Jesus himself said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, this has been a great encouragement to me. When I was first starting out in my journey to be a, a minister, my mentor would remind me often that God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And that was, it still is to this day, an encouragement to me, but it's not just true for those who pursue vocational ministry. It's true of every Christian everywhere. My calling to be a pastor might be a unique calling, but it's not a higher calling. It's not a loftier calling. It's not a more special calling than the calling that God has put on your lives because ultimately we are all called to do the same thing. Glorify God no matter what role or situation He has placed us in. And the great news is God is equipping and enabling us to do just that. He is equipping and enabling us to live for His glory. And isn't that what we desire to do? When we hear the blessing of this passage, hopefully, it stirs up in us a desire to live for the glory of God. That was the desire that the author of Hebrews clearly had for both himself and the church to whom he was writing. That's why he ends his benediction by praising God to whom be glory forever and ever. It needs to be our prayer that our natural heartfelt response to the blessings of God, to the good news of the gospel is a prayer that says, Lord, I want to live now for your glory and honor. I pray that that is the overflowing response of our own hearts here this morning, that our hearts would overflow with praise for who God is, for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and what God continues to do for us as we live out the Christian life in this world. Now, as we end our series in the book of Hebrews, I, I hope that you continue to reflect on the great truths that we've heard throughout this book. The, the truth that in Jesus we have a Savior who is the fuller and better revelation of God to us. We have a 
Savior who is better than Moses. A Savior who is better than the angels. In Christ we have a better, a great high priest. In Christ we have a mediator, a better mediator than any earthly prophet or any earthly priest. We have a better mediator before God. In Christ we have a better sacrifice through which we've been made perfect for all time through His once offering of Himself. In Christ we've been brought to peace with God and given full access into His holy presence forever. Don't forget those truths just because our study on the book of Hebrews is now drawing to an end here every Lord's Day. Continue to remember them. Reflect upon those truths. And I truly hope that as you remember those truths, as you reflect upon them, as you apply them to your lives day in and day out, I hope your response is one of praise and worship. I hope your response is similar to the words of our final hymn, the final verse of our final hymn, which says, creation, life, salvation too, and all things else, both good and true, come from and through our God always and fill our hearts with grateful praise. Come, lift your voice to heaven's high throne and glory give to God alone.